Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Okay, I've got a Patreon questions episode for you. This whole episode will be Patreon questions, and I've got a huge range of topics from dogs that struggle to eat reliably, some decompression questions, some reactivity questions, arousal questions, you name it, it's probably coming up in this episode. So here we go. The first question comes from Sage, who writes... Hi, Sarah. It's Sage again with another question about Jed's feelings about food. He's an eight-month intact male border collie. I'm struggling now to know when his appetite is back to normal. All tests have come back normal, and he's back to a healthy weight, but we're still having to convince him to eat, and his eating skills are basically non-existent. I'm asking because I think what we're working with now is basically a healthy puppy who is already predisposed to be somewhat neutral about food, and I'm struggling with ways to help him become more fluent in eating as a reinforcer. He loves to tear into things, so we do a lot of food in paper bags or food in boxes, but I'd really like to get a scatter feed fluent as a skill, and right now we're only able to do that inside on a floor of a contrasting color to his kibble or treats, and he is still inconsistent on eating things. I don't want to practice him turning down food. I can't tell if he's just learned not to like food or if he actually still feels bad, and I don't want to spend too much time working on his eating fluency before his appetite is normal, but I also don't know if he'll be able to get to a normal appetite without me working on his eating fluency. It feels like a terrible feedback loop that I don't know where to exit. Thank you for any suggestions. Edit to add, he's still fluctuating weight and we're still pursuing medical causes, so this may not be relevant at this moment, but hopefully we'll have medical issues ruled out or solved soon. The only time he's reliably eating and acting as if food is a reinforcer is when we are also eating and he's getting scraps of what we eat. As soon as we finish the meal, the scraps lose interest. Any ideas on incorporating this social context into a plan to build good feelings about food? obviously to only to be implemented when he's healthy. So, and Sage had written in when this dog was a puppy saying that he was pretty disinterested in food and um, we had talked about pursuing medical things. I did a whole episode on food do's and don'ts and it sounds Sage like he's not actually well yet so if his weight is fluctuating still then he's probably still dealing with kind of whatever it is so you might chat with your veterinary team about antacids or something like that to potentially soothe his stomach even if you don't think his stomach is upset it might be definitely only do that with uh, your veterinary team on board Also, he's an eight-month-old intact male border collie, which is a really normal time for them to go off food, and he didn't feel like eating before this time, and so again, all of this feels 
unfortunately not like something you can do a lot about at this time. It's best for you to just avoid making it a bigger problem than it is at this time. Very interesting to me that he is interested in eating if you are eating. And what that says to me is that if you're eating a meal, you're probably not dog training. You're probably not worrying about whether he's eating or what he's doing otherwise. And so it's possible that there's like a little bit too much pressure around the food that he really senses your stress around the food. And so I would, in your training, not stress too hard about it. So if you give him a piece of food and he doesn't eat it at this rate, I would just continue into your next rep. And like, if he's doing the thing and he's in the training and he's taking the food and spitting it out or sniffing the food and not eating it, but he keeps coming back and keeps doing the thing, I might keep doing the thing, but it does still sound like a medical thing. And I do have an interview with somebody coming up where we talked all about dogs that have low food interest and kind of hacks for getting through it. So that episode is coming for you and keep pursuing those medical causes. Okay, next one comes from Aiden who writes, Roy and I, and Roy is Aiden's two-year-old Labrador retriever. Roy and I are taking a break from agility to work on arousal issues after we landed in a class on a night with too much going on in the building and he just couldn't. We're doing work outside of agility and are getting what ring time we can. It's hard to snag, but do you have any suggestions for returning to the class environment? I'm thinking if he has trouble with crating, early sign he is too high, just go in the ring and work on on-leash focus calm work so he can succeed and I don't send him further into arousal or is that asking too much? I usually bring him frozen Kongs and if he's in his normal state, he can calmly entertain himself in the crate and chill pretty well. But in our two weeks in the class he couldn't handle, he needed me at the crate the whole time. So Aiden, it sounds like you know what to do. It sounds like you know what Roy can and cannot do and you, it sounds like you know what his tells are. Like his tell is that he can't chew that Kong in the crate without you there. It sounds like you landed in a bad environment for you not necessarily that he can't be in class period so I would think about getting into a different class if you can hopefully one that is organized a little bit differently or has some lower key dogs I wouldn't be putting him back in that environment so if that environment is too much for him putting him back in it and then not asking that much of him is still kind of a problem you want to put him in a better class environment and then still not ask more of him than he can do and really work up to it and honestly it's it has to take its time and sometimes it takes longer than we want it to take but asking them to try to function when they're clearly telling us that they cannot is a surefire way for us to not actually reach our goals so try to get into a different class if you can't I would work on just walking into the building rather than going in so if he he needs to control himself in the parking lot he needs to be able to listen to you right when you walk in he needs to be able to listen to you as you head to the crate all of those things I'd be really zeroing in there and of course I will be running worked up soon at FDSA and so I would love to have you there as well. All right, next one is from Jane. And Jane's question is about reinforcing recall behaviors with toys. So Jane writes, I have found your responses to questions about chasing wildlife and your information about recalls in general so helpful. Thank you. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about reinforcing check-ins and recalls with toys rather than food. Do you think that is a route that makes sense for dogs who strongly prefer toys to food? So Jane, here's what I find. And you need to use what works for you and you need to pay attention to kind of your dog's behavior to tell you what's working. My dogs, or my dog Felix in particular, really does prefer, I, I can't even say he prefers toys to food. His 
feelings about toys are really different to food and he likes those feelings and I think and so usually if given the option we'll go for the toy instead of the food in a training scenario and so if I have a if I'm trying to reinforce his behaviors on a walk with a toy I'm probably not going to get decompression behaviors I'm probably not going to get any decompression type exercise because he's going to be thinking too hard about that toy if that's not your dog if your dog is perfectly content to sniff and roam and be a dog but will turn on and play with that toy with you the second you call them then that might be just that you have a different situation than I do in general for me food works best in getting the full gamut of behaviors that I want which includes decompression behaviors but you can certainly try it and see what you get Okay, next one is from Brittany who writes, any thoughts or recommendations for car sick pups? Doesn't matter speed or distance traveled. I know you've talked about this some, but where can I find it? Thank you for your thoughts. I'm not sure that was probably another Patreon question. So um, it is in the archives. <laughs> you would have to go back through and kind of listen to find it. But I don't have a protocol for this because typically I have you talk to your veterinarian about this. Typically I want anti-nausea meds and then if anti-nausea meds alone are not doing it, I want anti-anxiety meds on top of it. So I want both of those things on top of it. From there you can kind of build a plan to desensitize. It usually isn't something I can do a lot about from a behavior modification side unless the actual nausea and or anxiety are addressed from a medical standpoint. So Brittany, the first thing you should do is talk to your veterinarian about it. And if they suggest over-the-counter remedies that you haven't tried, you could try those first, but make sure that you tell them if you have already tried those things so that they can give you the bigger guns. Okay, next one is from Laura who writes, how to reduce fixation on pawing slash mouthing behaviors, especially when they are tied to a frustration or arousal response. I have a six-month-old Dutch Shepherd who has started a new behavior of wrapping her paws and mouth around my arm anytime I grab her collar. I do plan to take Teenage Tyrants, which is in session now, but this is making training confirmation skills hard because anytime I grab her collar, I get mauled, <laughs> which she's saying jokingly, the, it's, it's a puppy. Puppy claws and teeth are sharp. Same for collar grabs for recall or simply using the collar to move her from place to place. Not usually an issue when standing still, but as soon as movement is added, the behavior surfaces even in the house and when handled by people other than myself. I see this same behavior when playing tug. She wants to use her paws to grab things and I have since day one discouraged this by making the toy go dead when the paw is introduced but she remains very paw focused. So Laura, it's number one, I hope that you've got access to a good R plus based trainer near you because this is one of those things that I want the dog in front of me and I want you in front of me so that I can point out all the nuance to you and have you kind of adjust your behavior accordingly. If the dog is pawing and mouthing you for touching the collar, then the dog is saying, hey, don't touch my collar. And that alone can be worked on. You said something here that I want to point out because it may be part of the problem. You said, anytime I grab her collar, I define the behavior of the dog putting its collar in my hand. I call it a collar give. I avoid using the phrase collar grab, which is popularized by a lot of other trainers. Most trainers say collar grab and they teach it by grabbing and then feeding. And I don't do that. I teach the dog to put their collar in my hand themselves, which is outlined in Teenage Tyrants, which you said you took. So I hope that you are working through that in Teen Tyrants. There's also a yielding exercise there where we teach the dog to yield to the pressure um, that we might put on the collar. The other thing is your dog is a baby baby. So I wouldn't be pushing this skill really 
really hard right now. I would be pushing other skills that the dog is really good at, building your working relationship, building your repertoire, and continuing forward. And I know that that's not a perfect answer, but I can't give you a perfect answer in this format. Best of luck to you. Okay, and our next one comes from Annalise, who writes... I just listened to the recall podcast replay and it brought up a related question. I'm already on board with recalling my dog rarely, paying well for it, and rewarding for check-ins. My dog sometimes will stalk slash crouch and rush up to oncoming dogs when we are on off-leash walks. It seems to mainly be an attempt to get them to run so she can chase them. I do generally use my recall cue when she shows signs of going into this sequence to avoid these rude greetings. If I already have her attention and she's within 15 feet or so, I can keep her engaged in moving past the exciting dog with a pattern game or by asking for some other behaviors like a nose touch. But if she's a bit further away, the recall cue is the only thing that reliably works so far. Would you recommend another approach to this situation to reduce use of recall cue further? Glad to keep doing it as it's working so far. But thanks if you have other thoughts. So Annalise, that probably is what I would be doing, exactly what you're doing. The one change is I would probably have a really excellent reinforcer for specifically that recall. So I talk about having talk about having different values, different hierarchies of food on me for recalls. I would have something very, very good. So like I would have boring-ish check-in food, so maybe kibble. And then I would have good food, like maybe Zewi Peak or some other kind of dog treat that's better than kibble for most recalls. And then I would have something really super fundamentally excellent that is, I'm probably not even going to use, which might be like a piece of salmon skin from leftover dinner. And that would be if something surprising happened, like a bear. And then I would probably have another one for you. And The one that's coming to mind is the baby food that comes in a squeeze pouch. So it's really, really high value to my dogs. And I can just shove that squeeze pouch in my fanny pack when I go on the walk. And then I would use that food for those specific recalls to just keep putting big money in the bank for those recalls. So that's the only difference that I would have. If you can redirect, like if you can just go another direction instead of passing that dog, I would do that whenever you possibly can. Okay, next one comes from Anna, who says that she is a new podcast listener and a new patron, so welcome, Anna. Anna writes, I have an 18-month-old Brittany that has recently been showing signs of developing reactivity. It began about six months ago as occasional mild reactions, like a single bark, but has progressed to more frequent, longer outbursts. She gets lots of off-leash exercise slash decompression walks, both alone and with other dogs and people, and behaves appropriately. I've been taking data on her reactions, and she doesn't react in situations where we are playing training or in public spaces with lots of other people and dogs moving around freely. She does react when we are in stationary, so I think meaning being stationary, in public spaces, and she starts to feel like they're our space, such as an empty park at a friend's house or sitting in my car. She also only reacts when she is with me or my wife, not when she's alone. Her reactions never seem aggressive or fearful, more like she is announcing the presence of the person, dog, car, etc. If I can body block and get her into a state where she is calm and focused, she is happy to then politely greet the other dog in person, but sometimes getting her to disengage with the trigger and engage with me is extremely difficult. I have a local trainer to work with in mind if needed, but if this could be attributed to adolescent big feelings and managed ourselves before it accumulates too much of a reinforcement history, I would like to try. 
I have two main questions about developing reactivity and if there are ways to start heading it off. One, so first question, she is hypersocial. So I have worked hard since she was a puppy to focus on me in public and to avoid frequent greetings that could allow her hypersociability to be reinforced. Is it possible that by preventing her from public greetings, I've sensitized her and associated novel stimuli with frustration and is rewarding her by allowing a greeting the appropriate response when she has shown the correct behavior or am I making the problem worse? I'm going to answer that question first, Anna. I can't know that without seeing her and seeing your whole situation. Generally speaking, dogs that have really huge feelings about saying hi need to be reinforced for being calm and greetings usually don't lead us to being calm. So usually I would say that what you have done is correct. However, you're seeing behaviors that tell me that that's not true. You're seeing behaviors that tell me that what you have done is not the best. That's the best I can give you from what I know, but I'll answer your next question and then I'll pile on some more information. So question number two is I've listened to the Barky Lungy series as well as several of your podcasts about both reactivity and hypersociability. Could a toy reinforcer work as well as food in these situations? If a dog shows significant preference for toys over food, would a toy tend to be too overstimulating? So kind of like the previous question about recalls, I would say that the toy is probably of too high importance in this particular situation. It's not really about preference. It's about preference for kind of a certain mindset or a certain reinforcement procedure and pattern. And I would want the dog making really solid choices for food before I ever introduced a toy anyway. And that goes for literally everything I train. I train everything with food first and then introduce toy reinforcers. So no, I probably wouldn't go the toy route. So more information here, Anna, is that you should absolutely hook up with this local trainer that you like because this is a lot. And an 18-month-old that has kind of just recently developed this stuff definitely needs some help, definitely needs some serious intervention. If you don't see pretty quick progress with this trainer, you want to pivot, you want to get somebody else, you want to maybe talk to a veterinary behaviorist about some meds because all of this stuff should be relatively easy to give you some coping strategies for and the dog some coping strategies for really, really quickly. It sounds like your dog really does just want to say hi and that the body blocking and trying to switch her into being calm is producing bigger feelings and you may just need a better way to go than than what it is that you're currently doing and that's what I've got for you best of luck Anna I hope that you get hooked up with that trainer and that you are able to make progress quickly All right, next one's from Debbie who writes, I think this is a fairly generic decompression walk question. Do you have suggestions for how to proceed when a decompression hike location has been quote unquote poisoned? The downside of having lovely wild places where my dogs can comfortably romp off leash is that at least here in Oregon, these locations can be the same areas where people are shooting guns in the vicinity. Many years ago, and the most extreme example, one of my dogs completely freaked out when we rounded a curve on a trail close to where some Yahoo shot what sounded like a cannon, one huge boom. The dog bolted so quickly that I didn't even see which way he went. Eventually, I found him back at our house, which meant he'd navigated five plus miles of trail and a half a mile of town streets and traffic without me. Since then, that trail is not decompressing for him, even when we're not near the scene of the cannon. Today, on another trail with three dogs, it happened again, but with repetitive booming of a gun. Uh, Two dogs turned to me in fright, but Moon tried to bolt. Fortunately, he's old now, so I caught him. It was a fairly long leashed walk back to the car after the first volley and even safe 
in the car, Moon was still too freaked out to even take a treat. Do you have suggestions on ways to manage these incidents so that the dogs might still be happy to return to those trails, assuming the shooting isn't a regular occurrence? We're running out of places to go that fit all our needs. Oh, Debbie, I'm really sorry that this happened. The first incident is what I would call a traumatic noise event. And when the dog has a traumatic noise event, it is typical for them to associate that event with something and it could be a location especially if that location isn't one that they have a lot of other experience with and it sounds like that's what your dog did the other terrible thing that happens with trauma is that it opens the brain to make other traumatic memories and so this other gunshot incident may not have been as big of a deal otherwise but it is a big deal now sounds like the dog is older i would be asking you know does he need these walks does can i give him appropriate length walks places that he feels safe and that's for that's for that dog. I'd be thinking that direction. And if if the dog developed a really terrible association from one traumatic noise event, I would probably be talking to a veterinary behaviorist. I'd probably be talking about some meds to try to help the dog um, come through that trauma. What's really tough about these events is that you can't necessarily predict future events. And so you aren't going to be in a good place to help the dog feel safe again because you are always running the risk of the event happening again, as you kind of mentioned. However, what you can do is you can teach your dogs some really fun rituals that you can engage in when noises happen. So friend Dr. Amy Cook calls this a noise party where she teaches the dogs. Basically, she says you can't make the event smaller so you need to make the reinforcement event bigger so that's kind of something that i've done is that when felix hears gunshots in the woods i actually go into a training event i ask him to heal and i ask him to sit and down and touch and i feed him for all of it and i feed him really liberally and we have a really good time if he's too scared i just put him on a leash and i walk him on a leash but generally speaking doing that helped him to start to just feel better about us hearing gunshots in the woods and he's actually really really good about gunshots in the woods when he's not good about noises like that other times so what you could do is just you hear a gunshot in the woods and you're like oh that means the chicken comes out i only throw chicken around when there's gunshots in the woods and since you've taught the dog that otherwise they recognize it and it's it's a great thing it's not as good if it's random it's good if they already know that this is a really good event that they're interested in i am sorry that happened to you you could look into the ear pro by rex specs I should still have a code over there, Cognitive 10, that's Cognitive 1-0, for a little discount for you because I love that product and it really helps dogs that are afraid of noises to just not hear them as loudly, which allows you a little bit more space to have that noise party. And this can of worms comes from Amanda, <laughs> who writes, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on flyball, specifically in regards to dogs' mental emotional well-being. I'm currently learning the game in a class group environment with my cattle dog mix, and we're having a blast learning and practicing all the component skills. However, I'm not so sure about the overall vibe I'm getting so far of the sport. There seems to be a lot of focus on getting the dogs super hyped up and sometimes to a level that seems unhealthy to me. I feel very confident advocating for what I am and am not comfortable doing with my own dog, so I don't really have an issue with continuing to learn at this point in time though there's a good chance we'll never compete. Just curious whether you have any thoughts on the sport. 
So Amanda, it sounds like you are fully equipped to make the right decisions for you and your dog regarding fly ball. So I think that you doing fly ball with your dog sounds like a great choice. Totally fine. Sounds like it's super fun. My thoughts on this, that this kind of culture of getting the dogs super amped up, super high. I could say the exact same stuff for so many other sports, namely dog agility, which I love and participate in, that it's not really a fly ball thought. It's kind of a cultural overall thought. And that's that I like dogs to be in healthy thinking arousal states. I don't think that they need to be jacked up to the ceiling to be fast. But I also acknowledge that that's not the choice that everybody else makes. And I am really at peace with it, honestly. And so I say, have at it, have a good time, pay attention to your dog's emotional health, pay attention to whether or not they're getting enough rest during the day, if they're able to rest afterward, if they have any residual side effects, pay attention to that stuff and have fun. This one comes from Emma and Emma later added an edit to this, but I'm going to read you the edit at the end of the question and I'm still going to answer it. So Emma wrote, could you share some thoughts about socialization for puppies slash adolescents who are past their socialization window? I've recently taken on a very fun little Boston Terrier puppy. She is five months old and her breeder held her back as a show prospect, but determined she would be better suited to a sport home. I suspect that the socialization she received prior to coming to me was not the type of socialization that I would have done myself. She does very well with people and dogs of all sizes and temperaments, so no issues there, but she does seem nervous in new environments. She recovers very quickly, generally with Within a few minutes, she is confidently exploring the space, but I would like to work with her to increase her comfort in novel environments. Should I go about this in the same way that I would with a younger puppy, just taking her lots of places and setting her up to have positive experiences? Are there any special considerations for socializing an older puppy? And Emma later added that she did return to the puppy to the breeder because the puppy seemed to be sensitizing to new environments despite repeated positive exposure. So Emma, honestly, Honestly, good for you for making the right choice for you and for that puppy. I always, always advocate for that and good for the breeder for being totally willing to take her back. This is what this should look like. We should buy, you know, get a dog from a breeder who's always willing to take the puppy back and then be willing to return it if it's not a good fit. I support that choice. But your question I actually don't think about puppy socialization different than I think about exposing adult dogs. So it's always going to be asking the dog if they're okay and only proceeding if they are okay. And if they're not, then I might be adding some therapies outside of the actual exposure to help the dog. And those therapies could be what I call bravery school, which is kind of introducing the dog to progressively challenging things that they I always make sure they have success with. I mean, it really, if you had worked with me with this puppy, it would have been a full-blown behavior modification plan. I wouldn't have called it socialization. And that may not have been the right choice for you. So I am glad that you did make that choice and that you did give it a try. And I appreciate this question. Next one comes from Marissa who writes, given the emphasis you put on diet and how hard it is to find information online explaining just what a good diet, I was wondering if you could give some pointers on what to look for on dog food labels to understand what is going into food. Info on percentage of protein and fat, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So Marissa, I am not going to give any specifics on this. What I'm going to turn you to is the work of Linda Case. Linda wrote has written several books on dog food and you can Google her Linda P. Case 
and you will find even if you just googled linda case dog food you would find all of her information it's all research-based that's the best source of information that i can give you right now and i think that it will help you completely to understand and it'll answer all of these questions much better than i could and the last one for this patreon episode comes from our friend elisa who writes could you share what things you take into consideration when you're introducing a new puppy into your home like the actual process of physically bringing the puppy into your house and getting all canine family members acquainted so elisa i actually have a new online course on this that's available it's over at the cog dog classroom which is always linked in the show notes it is called household harmony i do talk about integration as well as maintaining the peace and what it looks like is number one i try to choose the right puppy for my household so if i'm bringing in a puppy that has a drastically different temperament or behavior set than the current dogs in my house i recognize that that might take longer to do i recognize that they may not be best friends as well but basically for me there's a gate up all the time there are gates between my puppies and my adults for a very long time my puppies kind of live in an x-pen or they're being trained or they're out with me rather than being free in the home and so therefore there's that gate or I will sometimes gate off with a baby gate certain rooms and then I will hang out with the puppy in there and have my adults on the other side I they are just gated around the other dogs for a long time and then they're off leash and free with the other dogs out on walks from day one and if I need to muzzle any of the adults to make that safe I do so and that's how I integrate them they exercise with the adults and they sleep near the adults but they're in a crate and they are in an x-pen in the same room as the adults for a really long time and honestly until it looks like everybody's really comfortable with each other out on walks and it is case by case but that's the cliff notes thanks elisa thanks everybody for your questions thanks for listening please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review if you'd like to support this podcast head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio you might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.